good morning, brothers and sisters. Uh, my name is Andrew, I, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here at New Life. And it's my joy and privilege today to be able to bring you God's word here, God's word here this morning. And many of you may know, we're actually beginning a new sermon series here today, going through the book of James. And this series will actually carry us throughout the entirety of the summer here. And many of you may also remember that our ministry theme for this current year was Christ and community, care, counsel, and commit. And this past year, we've tried to unpack various aspects of that theme from the pulpit throughout different sermon series. And so if you remember, at one point in the year, we, went, we looked at a cross-centered community. What does it mean to care for one another as a body of Christ, as believers and brothers and sisters in Christ? We went through a series looking at idols of the heart, which taught and allowed us to counsel not only ourselves, but also one another through the various idols and sins that we may struggle with and deal with in our own hearts and lives. And here today, to cap off this ministry year, we're going to be studying the book of James here together as a church, specifically to see and learn what does it mean to live a life that is committed to Jesus Christ as your Savior? What does it mean, in other words, to live a life and have a faith in your life that is living and that is active? Not just in terms of your own personal walk as a Christian, but what does this look like for us as a church as well, to be a church that has faith that is living and active in our lives. And so, brothers and sisters, with that said, we're going to begin this series here this morning by looking at the opening passage of the letter of James. And so if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up with me to James chapter 1. And this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. Otherwise, the passage will also be projected on the screen in front of you as well. But let me read this for us. This is God's word for us here this morning. James chapter 1, beginning of verses 1 through 8. This is the word of the Lord. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And this is God's word for us here this morning. Well, friends, as I said before we read the passage, what we have here in the book of James, what the book of James essentially is, is, is essentially teaches us and shows us what it means and what it looks like to walk with Jesus in everyday life? What does it mean, in other words, to have a faith in your life that's not dead or stagnant, but what does it look like to have a faith that is truly vibrant and alive in your life? And friends, the book of James is oftentimes, it's been quoted as being the Proverbs of the New Testament because it's a book that is very much practical. It gets into the nitty-gritty details of everyday life. And friends, if you notice, even in the beginning in this opening passage, that James's writing title, I know often we've gone through the letters of Paul, often in our sermon series at church, but James's writing style, as you can tell just right off the bat, is very different from Paul. James is very direct, he's very punchy, he doesn't spend much time with formalities or diving into deep or complicated doctrines, but right off the bat, after the shortest greeting out of any of the New Testament letters, James dives right in and straight in to the practical nitty-gritty details of everyday life, and he begins writing in verse 2 about trials about suffering, about difficulties in life. And friends, what James does in this opening passage of this letter is he shows us that the first mark of someone that has a faith in their life that is living and active, that is vibrant and genuine and real, the first mark of what that faith looks like is the ability to get through trials in life. 
the ability, in other words, to weather the storms and the trials that you and I all face in life, the ability to, to face them well and endure them well. And brothers and sisters, as we consider this passage here this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to just look briefly at three aspects of facing trials that James highlights for us here in this passage. And so the three things that we'll look at in this passage here this morning is first, our posture towards trials. In other words, how should you and I approach, how should we view trials when we're experiencing them in our lives? Secondly, we'll look at God's purpose for trials. Why does God allow, in his infinite wisdom, why does he allow suffering and trials to happen in our lives as believers, as his beloved children? And last, we'll look at the power for facing trials. Where can you and I get the strength, the wisdom, the resources to overcome and endure the hardships and the trials that you and I face in life? And so again, the three things that we'll look at here this morning are first, our posture towards trials, secondly, God's purpose for trials, and lastly, the power for facing them. So let's begin with the first point. If you read verse 2 again with me, James says, after his opening greeting in verse 1, James says in verse 2, and he begins this letter by writing to the brothers and sisters that he's writing to, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, friends, according to this verse, when it comes to facing trials in life, there are two postures, there are two perspectives that James says that we ought to have and we ought to embrace as believers in Jesus. First, we should expect trials. And secondly, James tells us that we should rejoice in them, that we should find joy in them. And so first, why should you and I as believers, why should we expect trials in our lives? Well, friends, if you look carefully again at verse 2, the first thing you'll notice if you read verse 2 very carefully is that James does not say, and he doesn't write to the Christians that he's writing to, count it all joy, my brothers, if you face trials, if trials ever come up in your life. But what James says and writes is count it all joy when you meet trials. And friends, that one word when, it's so important in verse 2 because what that one word when implies and what it means is that trials and suffering is normal as a Christian. Friends, trials are not these unexpected or freak occurrences that happen in our lives. But friends, on this side of glory, what James tells us is that trials are part and parcel of the Christian life. In other words, James tells us that we shouldn't be surprised when trials happen in our lives. Now friends, for James' original readers, this was a really tough pill to swallow because for the Christians that James was writing to, they were undergoing all sorts of trials and a lot of difficult suffering in their lives. If you look back at verse 1, James tells us in verse 1 that he's writing this letter to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. In other words, James was writing this letter to Jewish Christians who were scattered and dispersed all throughout the Roman Empire. And friends, these were Christians that knew very personally and deeply what it meant to suffer what it meant to go through trials and hardship in life. Because many of the Christians that James was writing to, they experienced religious persecution. Many of them experienced physical violence. They were beaten in public. And many of them lost their jobs, even their homes and their businesses, due to their faith in Jesus. And friends, yet what James writes to them and says to these Christians and believers is don't be surprised. Don't be shocked. Don't be surprised that you're undergoing all this suffering and all these trials. Because what James says is that trials are to be expected in the Christian life. They're part of the Christian life. Now, friends, as difficult as that must have been for James's original audience to hear, in some ways, I think it's even harder for us as believers here today, here in the West, to hear and accept. And friends, it's not because you and I here today, living in California, Orange County, it's not because we experience more hardship or more difficult trials than Christians did back in James's day, but I think it's actually because of the opposite. It's because you and I experience and suffer a lot less than they did. And friends, what I mean by this is that is this. I think because our culture and our society today, it is so worshipped 
and glorified and valued the values of comfort and convenience. Friends, what's happened is, whether we realize it or not, as Christians, the absence of trials in our lives have become our norm. The absence of any trial in your life has now become the norm. And what's happened is the presence of trials are now an anomaly. And so, friends, what happens is any time that you experience a setback in your life or a difficulty or a trial, what naturally happens in your mind is you think that something's wrong. Something out of the ordinary is happening. God must have messed up or you must have messed up because something is not right. And yet, friends, what the Bible tells us is that the world and our society, it actually has it flipped. See, Scripture, friends, tells us that as followers of Jesus, the presence of trials in our lives, not the absences of them, but the presence of trials in our lives is going to be more normal than the absence of trials. Friends, if you remember the words of Jesus himself in John 16, verse 33, in John 16, 33, this is the very last promise that Jesus ever gave to his disciples before he was betrayed and arrested. And in John 16, 33, Jesus says to his disciples, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You know, C.S. Lewis, he once commented on this verse in one of his writings, and I think he captured so well the heart of Jesus' words here. And C.S. Lewis once wrote this, and he said, Jesus' words here in John 16.33, what Jesus means by this is, life with God is not immunity from difficulties, but life with God is peace within the difficulties. Now, friends, according to C.S. Lewis, if you notice, the two things that Jesus promised us and his disciples before he was arrested and betrayed, the two things that Jesus promised us and guaranteed us was not peace, but no difficulties in life. But friends, the two things that Jesus guaranteed that we would experience as believers in him was peace and difficulties. In other words, friends, peace in the midst of difficulties. And so, friends, that's exactly why the first posture that James tells us that we need to have as Christians when it comes to facing trials is to expect them and to not be surprised or blindsided by them when they hit us in our lives. Because, friends, Jesus never once in the New Testament throughout his ministry and life, he never promised us a comfortable life free of difficulty, free of burdens, or free of suffering and trials. But, friends, what Jesus did promise us was to comfort us every time that we experienced or endured a trial. And, friends, that is why James tells us that the first posture we should have when it comes to trials is to expect them. Now, friends, the second posture that James says we should assume when we face trials is that we should not only expect them to happen and, come and approach us in our lives, but that we should also rejoice when we experience them. Now, friends, before we unpack what that means, because I think this is oftentimes a verse that has been misinterpreted by Christians uh, throughout the centuries, throughout the years. First, what does James not mean when he says that we should rejoice or count it all joy when you and I experience trials in our lives. Now first, friends, when James says to count it or to consider it all joy, James is not so much telling you and I how to feel when we're going through trials, when we're going through difficulties, but he's more telling us how to think. In other words, friends, James isn't so much telling us that we need to feel a certain emotion when we're going through trials, but what James is telling us is he's telling us to consider or adopt a certain mindset or a certain perspective when you and I are going through suffering and trials and difficulties. In other words, friends, James is not saying that when you undergo a trial, when a loved one gets sick, when you lose your job, or when you have a falling out with someone, James is not telling us that you need to force yourself somehow to feel joyful or happy in that circumstance. 
But see, on the flip side, friends, James is also not telling us that when you go undergo a trial, he's not saying on the flip side that when you're undergoing suffering that you simply detach yourself from all emotion. And even though you feel this immense sorrow and depression and pain from your trial, he's not saying that you simply detach yourself from all emotion and basically think that you're not feeling anything depressing or sorrowful or difficult. But friends, what James is saying is this. James is saying, friends, that when we consider our trials as joy in our, in our difficulties, it doesn't mean that on the one hand, you try and force yourself to feel joy even when you don't feel it. But it also doesn't mean that you try and approach trials with this sort of stoic mentality where you basically pretend and act like everything is completely fine even when you know and feel like your life is falling apart. Now, for those of you who are younger, you may think of that image of that meme of the cartoon dog sitting in the house that's burning on this chair, but simply with a smile on his face saying, this is fine. You feel like your life's falling apart, and yet you just keep telling yourself, this is fine. That's not what James is saying. But friends, if that's the case, what does that actually mean then to consider your trials as joy when you're experiencing them? And friends, what it means is this. It means that you view your trials from a biblical and a heavenly perspective and lens. That's what it means. Friends, in other words, it means that when you meet trials in your life, that you need to allow your theology to dictate and to speak into how you view your trials and not the reverse. And friends, what I mean by that is this. You know, oftentimes I think when you and I experience trials and difficulties in life, the very first thing that happens is we allow our trials to dictate and to speak into our theology rather than allowing our theology to dictate and speak into how we should view our trials. And see, what happens is because of our trials, our trials cause us to have this distorted view of God a distorted view of ourselves and also our circumstances in the world around us. And friends, that's why so many of us, I'm sure all of us can attest to moments where when we've undergone suffering or difficulties or hardships, many of us have instinctively asked the questions, God, if you're really good, God, if you really care about me, if you're as good as the Bible tells me, if you really love me and care for me as much as you say you do, then why are you letting this happen to me? Or we may say or think things like, God, am I going through this because I did something? I messed up, I sinned, and now you're upset at me or you're punishing me or you're angry at me. And see, friends, whether we realize it or not, what's happened in those moments when we think those thoughts and say those things is what's happened is we've allowed our trials and our suffering to tell us about God and who he is and how we should view him rather than allowing God and his word to speak into our trials, to tell us about our trials and to tell us how to view them and how to approach them. And see, friends, when we actually allow our theology to dictate and to speak into our trials, friends, that's when we can actually begin to experience joy and rejoice in them. Because, friends, the resounding answer that the Bible gives us when we ask the question, God, why am I going through this? Why are you allowing this to happen in my life? The resounding answer that the Bible gives us is that our trials are never meaningless. And friends, that they are never wasted experiences in our lives. But friends, the resounding answer that the Bible gives us is that God is accomplishing something through our trials. And friends, that is the reason why we can not only expect trials in life, but that's the reason why, as James says, we can also rejoice in them. Because friends, in the end, we know that God, in some mysterious way in his wisdom, is working through our trials. He's using them for our good. And friends, this brings us to our second point. God's purpose for trials. Well, friends, if the reason that you and I can actually rejoice in trials is because we know that God works through them, he has some sort of purpose for them, then the obvious question is, what exactly is that purpose? 
Well, if you read verses 2 through 4 again with me, James answers that question, and he writes to us in verses 2 through 4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Friends, the reason that James says that we can count it all joy when we undergo hardships and trials is because God's purpose in our trials is to strengthen and deepen our faith in him and through the trials. That's his goal. That's his purpose anytime you and I experience hardships or difficulties or sufferings in life. Now, friends, the obvious question now is, how exactly does that work? How does that happen? How does God actually use difficulties and setbacks and trials and suffering in our lives to actually grow us as Christians? Well, friends, James essentially tells us that it's a two-step process. The first step, he tells us in verse 3, is that God uses trials in order to test our faith, to test us as Christians. Now, friends, in our culture today, immediately, especially for those of you who have grown up in Asian households or cultures, immediately when you and I hear the word testing, what do you think of? Some of you who are in middle school or high school, you might think of finals or SATs or final exams in school. Oftentimes, we think of just the concept of passing something or failing something or receiving some sort of a grade. And so, friends, when we hear this phrase that James says, the testing of our faith, oftentimes you and I naturally think that when God is testing our faith, what's happening is he's testing us to see whether we have enough faith in him or not. He's testing us to see whether we know scripture enough or not, whether we'll pass or fail his test of faith for us. But friends, that's actually not at all what James is talking about here when he says that God uses trials to test our faith. Because friends, see, when James talks about the testing of our faith, that word for testing is actually the word for refining. In other words, it's a word that refers to the process of refining silver or some sort of precious metal. See, friends, back then in James's day, the way that blacksmiths and silversmiths would test and refine and purify silver is they would put all this silver in this huge pot, this huge iron pot, and what would happen is they would heat up that pot to a really, really high temperature with fire, and over time, what would happen in that pot is all the impurities that were in the silver, they would eventually, because of the heat, they would bubble up and they would rise to the surface of that pot. And what would happen is the blacksmith or the silversmith would scrape off or scoop off all the impurities that rose to the surface. And what would happen is the blacksmith would do this over and over and over again until all he was left with is this pure pot of pure, pristine silver. And friends, the reason that James uses this word refining and testing is because that is, what a, that is a picture of what it looks like, friends, when God is testing our faith. Friends, when, when we experience trials, God is not testing you and me to determine to see whether you have enough faith or not in him, whether you'll believe me or trust me enough through this trial, whether you, you know enough scripture to be able to endure the trial through your own faith. But friends, what God is doing us, to us when he's testing us through our faith in trials is he is purifying, purifying and he's refining the faith that he has already given us. In other words, friends, the way he does this is he, he tests us and refines us by, by allowing the heat and the fire of trials to enter into our lives in order to make all our impurities, our, all our idols and the sins and the false saviors that you and I so tightly cling on to in our lives, he allows us to endure, endure and undergo all this fire in our lives to make those impurities and those idols and those sins rise up to the surface of our lives that God can scrape off and scoop them out and remove them from our hearts and our lives. Friends, that is the first way that God uses trials to grow us. He uses trials to test to refine, and to purify our faith in him. 
But now, friends, the second step that James says God uses to bring growth through our trials, that's found in verses 3 and 4. When James says in verses 3 and 4, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And friends, what James essentially says in these verses is that what this repeated process of testing and refining and purifying in our faith does and produces in us is steadfastness. And James says that steadfastness, when it's cultivated, when it's developed, what that ultimately produces in our lives is maturity. It produces a mature faith. Now, friends, one thing that I just want to point out here is that that word steadfastness that James uses, it's really a word that means perseverance, strength, or endurance. In other words, it's a, ter- it's a term that's not so much typically, at least in Greek, that's used to refer to faith, but it's a term that's basically referring to something that's athletic or physical. In other words, friends, in some ways, what James is saying here is that the way that faith operates, the way that it grows and works, is very much similar to the way that a muscle grows or a muscle gets strengthened in the human body. Just like a muscle, friends, builds strength, it builds endurance, the more resistance it experiences, the more it's torn and ripped, the more it's worked out. In the same way, friends, James is saying that the way that faith grows is not going to be through comfort and being idle and relaxing, but the way that faith grows and the way that works is through the discomfort and the pushback of trials and difficulties in our lives. And friends, this is common sense, I think, to all of us that we know already. You know, many of you know that Hollywood actors, when they're preparing to play some sort of superhero role in a movie, many of you know that they have to begin preparing months and months, sometimes even a full year in advance, depending on the role or the character, in order to get in the right shape to play that role. Now, for example, I read in an article earlier that Chris Hemsworth, in his preparation to play Thor in the very first Thor movie, years and years and years ago, he had to adopt and undergo this very, very strict and intense workout regimen that basically required him to work out three times a day, early in the morning, once in the afternoon after lunch, and then once in the evening. And he would have to do that for a period of six months straight. Basically, all he would do for six months is work out three times a day and eat tons and tons of chicken breast. And friends, the only way that Chris Hemsworth could have gotten big and strong and swole enough to play the role of Thor in all the Marvel movies that we've seen is how. Friends, it's... it's, through experiencing all the discomfort, all the resistance, even times of the pain and the suffering in some sense of all those workouts that he went through. And friends, this is my point. Just one quick point of application before we move on to our last point. You know, brothers and sisters, I think if we're honest with ourselves, you know, some, for some of us, when it comes to trials in our lives, when it comes to experiencing suffering or setbacks or difficulties, our natural instinct is to just avoid them as much as we possibly can. Friends, our natural instinct at times is to run away from them. And when we can't do that, then our natural instinct is to do everything that we possibly can to control and to manipulate our circumstances into escaping our trials or making them end or go away. And brothers and sisters, there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. Friends, I think all of us can resonate with that. None of us want to endure or experience trials or suffering or difficulty in our lives or heartbreak. But brothers and sisters, the question for us here this morning then is, if your number one priority in your life, friends, if the goal of your life is just to get through life, experiencing as 
little suffering and trials as humanly possible in your own control. Friends, if your number one priority in life and goal in life is to protect your security and your comfort and your convenience above all else and avoid trials and sufferings at all costs, well then, the, the, friends, the question for us here this morning is, how, how, according to James, are you ever going to grow? How is your faith ever going to reach endurance and strength and perseverance and maturity if you never work out, if you never endure suffering or trials, if all you do is escape them? And friends, that is not to say that God cannot deepen, he can't strengthen your faith, and he can't grow you through times of blessing and prosperity and comfort. But friends, thinking that you can grow in your faith without trials, thinking that you can grow in your faith without ever learning what it means to persevere and be steadfast through hardships and difficulties, thinking that, friends, that's basically the equivalent of never once going to the gym in your life and yet expecting you in six months to have a body like Chris Hemsworth in 4-1. When in reality, friends, spiritually, your body probably looks more like beer belly Thor from Avengers Endgame because, friends, all you've done is You've avoided hardships. You've avoided trials. All you've done is to try and control your life and to protect your comfort and your convenience. Because, friends, at the end of the day, according to James, trials, trials are the pathway to a mature faith. Trials are the pathway to experiencing Jesus' grace more deeply and more intimately in your life. And, friends, that's how and why God allows us to endure and experience hardships and trials in our lives, to grow our faith, to bring us to maturity. And friends, this brings us to our last point, the power for facing trials. Well, friends, we looked at our posture towards trials, the viewpoint that we should have when it comes to uh, experiencing trials in our lives. We looked at God's purpose for trials. Now we'll consider and ask the question, what exactly are you and I supposed to do when trials actually hit us and when we experience them in our lives? What are we supposed to do? How do we get the resources and where do we get those resources for facing our trials? And friends, if you read verse 5 again with me, James, he answers that question for us, and he says this in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Now, friends, according to James, the power for facing trials in our lives, it comes from asking God for wisdom. And so now, obviously, the question is, how do we do that? How, what exactly does that look like in our lives? Well, friends, first, we need to understand what wisdom is. In other words, we need to understand what it is that you and I are supposed to ask God for when we're enduring trials and difficulties in our lives. And now, friends, you know, I think oftentimes when you and I are experiencing trials and we eventually and hopefully actually do turn to God in our trials, friends, what is the first thing that you and I typically ask God for when we're enduring a trial or a suffering in our life? Well, friends, I don't know about you, but a lot of times for myself, the very th first thing I, th I find myself praying for and asking for is for God to take the trial away. It's for God to give me an out. For God to put an end to my trial. And friends, while that's a perfectly good and fine thing to ask for God when you're experiencing suffering and difficulty in life, friends, that's not actually what James tells us to ask for here in James chapter one. Friends, instead, what James tells you and I to ask for is not for God to just immediately put an end to our suffering, but what he tells us to ask for is for wisdom. And now friends, what does it mean to ask for wisdom? The late R.C. Sproul, the, uh, the great theologian, he once commented on this verse, and he describes biblical wisdom in this way. And he tells us that to be wise or to have wisdom in biblical terms is to know and understand godliness, to do what is pleasing to God. 
And so friends, if that's the definition of wisdom in our lives, if that's the definition of wisdom, is to know and understand what's pleasing to God, what's most glorifying to him, then friends, what James is saying is that what we should ask for in a trial, it's not so much, God, how do I get myself out of this mess? God, show me and reveal to me what are the steps that I need to take in order to escape this suffering and this trial or make it go away. But friends, the question that wisdom asks in a trial is, God, how do I conduct myself in a way? How do I conduct myself in a way that will allow me not to just get through this trial or endure it, but how can I conduct myself in a way that will allow me to grow through this trial? Friends, what wisdom asks in a trial is, God, what impurities and what idols are you trying to reveal in in my heart through this trial, and how can I respond in a way that allows, Lord, you to grow me through this difficulty? Friends, that's what it means to ask for wisdom in trials. It's not so much, and it's not necessarily asking God, Lord, how can I fix, control, or change my circumstances? But it's asking God, how can I be changed by you through this trial and through my circumstances? Friends, that's what it means to ask God for wisdom in trials. Now, friends, secondly, James not only tells us what to ask for trials, but he also tells us how you and I ought to ask for wisdom. And friends, he says in verses 6 through 8, if you read verses 6 through 8 again with me, James writes there and he says, But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, brothers and sisters, I think, again, these are some verses in James especially, that have oftentimes been misinterpreted in the church because, you know, I think a lot of times when people read these verses, they think that what James is saying here in these verses is that as a Christian that you can never have any doubt, ever. That you always, that you can never ask any questions or be skeptical or unsure about anything related to faith or the Bible or God or Christianity. And that you always need to be in this constant state of just absolute belief and perfect trust in God. And friends, just to be clear, that is actually not at all what James is talking about or saying here in these verses. See, friends, when James uses that word doubt, he's using the word doubt in a very, very narrow and a very specific sense. And basically, when James uses the word doubt, friends, he's basically referring to someone that has split loyalties. He's talking about someone, as he says in verse 8, who is double-minded or two-faced. This is basically that friend that maybe some of us have who, when they're watching a football game or a basketball game, they're trying to root for both teams at the same time. This keeps going back and forth, and it doesn't work. Friends, in other words, what James, when James talks about someone who doubts and how they're like this wave that's tossed back and forth by the sea and by the wind, what he's saying and, and what he's talking about, he, friends, is someone who puts their faith in, in their loyalty in two separate or two different things. In other words, they'll put their faith in God's wisdom, and they'll put their faith in the promises of Scripture. But friends, at the exact same time, they'll also put their faith and their loyalty in the wisdom of the world. In other words, they'll turn to God in their trial and their difficulty for wisdom, but the very moment that they feel that God or Christianity is not working for them, it's not offering them what they thought it would, and they don't feel the way that they think they should or their circumstances aren't changing, what they'll do then is they'll flip-flop and they'll basically turn to the wisdom of the world in order to get through their trial. They'll turn to their money, their security, their relationships, or their power in order to ground their life and to serve as a foundation for their life. Friends, in other words... Someone who's a doubter, as James says, someone who's double-minded. It's not someone who's wrestling with their faith. It's not someone who's earnestly trying to understand and trust God 
but is having a difficult time doing that. But friends, someone who doubts, the doubter is essentially the person that Jesus himself talks about in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. This is a verse that I think many of us are familiar with and may know. But in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus says to his disciples, No one can serve two masters, for he, he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, or God and something else. And friends, in other words, Jesus himself Jesus himself tells us that in the end, when you're going through a difficulty or a trial, when you're suffering, in the end, there can only be one master that you turn to for wisdom. There can only be one master that you ultimately turn to ground you in your life and be your foundation. And what Jesus says is that master either has to be him or it has to be someone or something else, but it cannot be both. You cannot flip-flop from trusting God to then trusting yourself, to then trusting your money or security or power or relationships. But friends, what Jesus says is that one person who needs to ground your life and be your foundation in the midst of a trial is himself. And friends, in the end, that's what James says. See, what James is telling us is that when you and I turn to God in the midst of trials, when we ask God for wisdom, that you and I need to do so with faith with faith, trusting and knowing that he alone can provide us with the wisdom and the strength that we need to not just endure and get through the trials of our lives, but to grow in and rejoice in them. And so friends, as we come to a close, let me just end with this. How and where do you and I get the resources and the faith to actually trust God in this way? Now, how and where do you and I, can you and I get the faith to know and trust that God and not anyone or anything else will really give us the wisdom and the strength and the grace that we need to endure the trials that, we, that he allows us to endure in our lives. And friends, the way that James answers that question for us is in verse 5 again. If you read verse 5 again with me, James says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Now friends, what James does in this verse is he anchors this promise, he anchors that, this promise that God will give us wisdom in trials when we ask. He anchors that promise in God's generosity as our Heavenly Father. In other words, he anchors it in God's character. And friends, in some, way, all, some ways, all that James is doing here in this verse is he's echoing an earlier promise that Jesus gave to his disciples earlier in Matthew chapter 7. Friends, if you remember Matthew chapter 7, verses 9 through 11, Jesus says and he promises to his disciples in these verses Or which one of you, if his son asks him for a bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father, who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him? To those who ask him. Brothers and sisters, in other words, the reason that we can trust God, that he will provide the wisdom and the grace, and the strength for our trials is because, friends, we know that as our Heavenly Father, that God is so generous, and He is so lavish to us with His wisdom and with His grace. And, friends, where we see this generosity of God as our Father most displayed most clearly and most powerfully and evidently is in the message of the gospel. Because, friends, what does the gospel tell us as believers? What does it tell us? Well, friends, the gospel tells us 
that even when you and I didn't turn to God for wisdom, even when we never asked him for wisdom, but in fact, you and I rejected God's wisdom and guidance for our lives, and we lived lives of rebellion and sin against God, that God in his grace still sent wisdom to us, even when we didn't want it, even when we didn't ask for it. And friends, God sent wisdom to us, not just in the form of knowledge or words, but friends, God sent wisdom down to us in the form of a man, Jesus Christ, who is wisdom incarnate, as the Bible tells us. And friends, who not only revealed to us in his wisdom how we should live lives that are pleasing to God, but friends, who himself pleased and satisfied the demands of God's law and justice through his life, his death, and his resurrection for us as believers. And so friends, if God did all of that, while the Bible says you and I were God's enemies, then friends, how much more will God not provide us wisdom now that we have been adopted as his children? And so brothers and sisters, as we close, I pray that whatever trials or difficulties that you may be facing in your life right now, and I'm sure this past year has been in just so many ways difficult for many of us. There are so many and various trials, as James says, that many of us may have endured this past year and a half during the pandemic, or even now in your life, you may be undergoing trials. Brothers and sisters, my prayer for you is that as you reflect on these words of James and that God gives us, that you'd be able to face your trials with a steadfastness, with a perseverance, and with a joy that comes from knowing the wisdom that God has sent us from above, that comes from knowing the grace and the love and the promise of comfort and peace that we can only find in Jesus Christ as our Savior. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, so much that, Lord, despite all of the difficulties and the trials and the setbacks that we may, that you allow us, Lord, to undergo in our lives, Lord, we're so thankful, God, that, Lord, that you promise and that you guarantee us in your word that, Lord, when we turn to you, when we ask for it, God, that you will give us the wisdom, the grace, and the strength that we need to overcome the trials that we endure in our lives. And Lord, I especially pray for my brothers and sisters here or who who may be live streaming with us, Lord, that if any of us, Lord, are enduring or going through trials right now in our lives that we feel are too difficult to bear, too difficult to endure, Lord, and we just ask and want them to go away. Lord, my prayer for all of us, Lord, is that again, as we've learned in James, that Lord, not just simply being able to endure until the trials go away, Lord, but that I pray that each of us, Lord, would learn what it means to build endurance and steadfastness and being able to trust in you and to be molded and shaped and grown by you through the trials that you allow us to experience. And so, Lord, we thank you again for your grace to us in Christ, and we pray that, Lord, you would give us and build within us the steadfastness that we need in our lives to endure trials well. We thank you and love you, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.